ahead. Uh, we are in this series on the church, and we come to um, what I initially thought was going to be one sermon on what we call the ordinances. Some people may refer to them as sacraments. Either way, it's is fine. Uh, and just the more that, uh, that I studied and prepared, just became convinced that there was no way to do justice uh, to this by trying to put baptism and the Lord's Supper together into one sermon. And so um, called an audible and decided we'll do baptism this week. We'll talk about the Lord's Supper next week and then continue on with the remaining Sundays that we have left. Um, just recognize, though, some of the things that have already happened in this service before we even, we even get to the scriptures and, and talking about baptism and what the Lord has given us in that act. Uh, one, we already saw someone, we saw Michaela being baptized, and when we, when we baptize someone, um, our habit and tradition is to try to draw in Scripture, what the Lord Himself has said about the nature of baptism. So, in obedience to the command of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? Baptism is an act of obedience. Uh, Paul uses language that we'll look at a little bit later in Romans 6 about baptism representing or giving us a picture of being uh, dead and buried and then resurrected to new life. Um, we sang just now, I jotted it down uh, in this last song that we sang, to you we lift our eyes, singing to Jesus, we adore you, behold you, right? How do, how do we behold Jesus, well, in one sense, we behold Him most clearly by the work of His Spirit as He's revealed in Scripture. But what I want to try to convince you of today, or maybe not convince you of, but remind you of today, is that another way that we behold Jesus is through baptism in the Lord's Supper. That one of the things that God has done, because He is gracious and kind, He has given us as gifts the practice of baptism in the Lord's Supper so that we can give an image, we can give even to our senses some way to connect our faith even with this material existence we, that we have. We are embodied souls. And God has done a good and generous thing to give us baptism. So let me start in Matthew chapter 28... Let me read just a few verses here what Jesus says, the instructions that he gives to his disciples before he ascends, and then we'll pray and work our way through the various texts that we have. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them, that is his disciples, saying, "'All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore... Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is God's Word to us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the gift that you have given us in the ordinances of the church, that rather than just seeing this as mere formalism or empty tradition, that we would 
recognize how you use these things to build us up in our faith, to set us apart, to even call back to our remembrance what it is that you have done for us so that we would not become forgetful and stray from you. Help us, Father, for those who have been baptized to look back and recall that day with gratitude and with thanksgiving. If there is anyone here who has not followed you in baptism, but who would claim to be your disciple, we ask that you would move on them and encourage them to be obedient and to work out their faith in fear and trembling. And for those who may be here in our midst who do not know what it means to follow Christ according to his call, would you work on their hearts by your spirit such that they cannot rest until they get the answers that their hearts are looking for? We pray all this in your name. Amen. So what are the ordinances and why are they important? If you have your, uh, your notes with you, which we had at the uh, heads of the aisle, the collection boxes, what I uh, thought we would do is we would provide something of a, a shorthand definition or explanation of what we mean when we talk about the church ordinances, and then using Scripture we would try to unpack that definition or that explanation. And one of the things to, to keep in mind when we talk about things like baptism or the Lord's Supper, think, if you will, about the doctrine of the Trinity, right? The, the Trinity is not necessarily a doctrine that is explicitly taught in any sort of a formulaic way, but as we go through the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, and as we look and we see what the Scriptures have to say about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, the way that they relate, the way that they are distinct yet one in essence and nature, we are able to biblically, with confidence and authority, pull together what the Bible has to say about the Trinity. In much the same way, we see clearly the Bible talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper. But oftentimes, that's about as far as we go. We, we see, we know that it's there, but we, we have spent very little time thinking through why these things are there, why it's necessary and important for us to observe these ceremonial acts, and what the purpose is or what it is that God is intending to accomplish by giving us these things. So, if you have your notes... Here's the, the short explanation that we tried to give to explain the ordinances as succinctly but as fully as possible. And I, I put in parentheses, if you're looking at the notes, a couple names just so you would know in part one, I'm not trying to create a, a definition out of my own head. I, I did a lot of studying coming up to this because there's a lot of differences of opinion and discussion, and I'm trying to draw on as many good and solid resources as I can, and I want to show you where some of these other resources are, but here we go. An ordinance is a ceremonial act that Christ has instructed his church to observe. Christ has given us two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The ordinances act as visible signs and seals. We'll talk about that in a, in a little bit here. They act as visible signs and seals of the promises of salvation in Jesus Christ, and we demonstrate our faith and obedience toward God by keeping them. 
So it's important to, to recognize as we go through here that one of the things that's happening when we observe baptism in the Lord's Supper later on in the service is that there is a sense in which part of what's happening is what God is doing for His people by giving us these ordinances. But precisely because He's given them to us to use and to observe, there is something that we are doing when we keep the ordinances. We respond as is always the case, we respond to what the Lord has given by faith and obedience. And that is always true when it comes to baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, let me say, just as a, if you don't hear anything else that I say the rest of this service, please hear me on this. My goal is to try to demonstrate to you, biblically, through Scripture, why the ordinances are essential to the Christian life specifically essential to the Christian life, not just as individuals, but as a gathered body, as a church family. All right? So while I want to be persuasive and I want to speak very confidently about some of the things that Scripture says, there's the danger that in trying to demonstrate or show how important the ordinances are, that you can drift into the mindset that the ordinances are so important that if I don't have them, if I have not been baptized, if I don't participate in the Lord's Supper, I cannot be saved. And that is not the case. Baptism does not save anyone. No one. Participating in the Lord's Supper at the end of this service will not save anyone. We are saved through grace or by grace through faith. If, hear me very, very clearly, if faith is not already present when the act of baptism or the Lord's Supper is engaged in, it means absolutely nothing. If the Word of God, through the ministry of His Spirit, is not acting in our faith when we do these things, it doesn't matter if you do it every day or every week, it will mean absolutely nothing to you or to me. However, to say that is not to say that we ought to view these things as optional features in the Christian life. Far from it. Although these things do not make us disciples of Christ, they are essential to what it means to being a disciple of Christ. And we ignore these things to our own danger and our own spiritual sickness and demise. So, three things that we want to take note of. Number one, start off with the very beginning. We said in our definition that an ordinance is a ceremonial act that Christ has instructed His church to observe. The number one reason, and, and we could end the sermon here, but don't worry, I'm not, all right? We could end the sermon here. The number one reason that we baptize people is because Christ has told us to. 
Jesus said his disciples are to be baptized. If Jesus commands us to baptize disciples, if he commands us, if you are going to be a disciple, you ought to be baptized, you must be baptized, then not to be baptized is not to obey Christ. So we just read Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus sends his disciples out, tells them to go and make disciples, but essential to disciple-making is baptizing. You cannot, at least not in what Jesus says in Matthew 28, you cannot think that you are a healthy, growing, full disciple of Jesus Christ if you have not been baptized, because baptism, according to Jesus himself, is the first public act of obedience that you do in following Jesus Christ. So if we claim to be his disciples, we claim to be lifelong learners of Christ because he is king and he is Lord. Did you hear Jesus? All authority has been granted to me in heaven and on earth, right? Because of what he did in his death, resurrection, and he's about to ascend and be seated at the right hand, all authority is given to me. If, if by faith we acknowledge and confess that truth, and we say that, yes, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, He is my Lord and my King, our Lord and our King, and then in the next breath say, but I choose not to obey Him in baptism, something is not connecting. If at the outset of the Christian life, if at the outset of faith in Christ, we would choose not to obey Christ, who we claim to be Lord and Savior, our King, if we choose at the outset not to obey what is going to be one of the most simple, clear-cut instructions that our Lord gives us, why then should we have any confidence that we are going to obey when things get much tougher and much more difficult? If you choose at the outset what you will and will not obey, that already conditions you in such a way to say, I will continue to choose and decide what I will and will not obey according to the call of Christ through all my days. And that kind of heart attitude, whether it is consciously realized, whether it is verbalized or not, that kind of heart posture is not consistent with a disciple of Jesus Christ. All that being said, I'll say again, please do not misunderstand. If you are here and you believe you have turned to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to find forgiveness for your sins, to find pardon, if your hope is resting in Him, not in anything that you've done, and you have not been baptized, what we are not saying is that, well, you can't possibly be a son or a daughter of God. Baptism does not make you a disciple. 
but it shows that you are a disciple. If you're here this morning and, and you, you have not turned to submit to the Lordship of Christ, but you're hearing these things, not just this morning, but in other, other sermons or other Bible studies or other kinds of talks or discussions you've heard on Christian podcasts or from other Christians, and, and you're, you're beginning to get an idea of what it means to follow Christ, and you want to know, what, what do I do? I'm hearing this. It's resonating with me. My heart is being drawn to it. What do I do? I would say without hesitation, if you have been, have, have been changed in your heart and mind, you are seeking to follow after Christ, the very best thing that you can do, the right thing for you to do, is to take that first step of faith and obedience and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ as a sign that you intend to follow him all the days of your life. So this is baptism, and by extension, we'll talk next week more about the Lord's Supper. This is something that is not optional. This is not empty tradition or formalism. This is something that we do as a church because Christ himself has given it to us and has commanded us to do it. And we cannot claim to be serious disciples of Jesus Christ with a clean conscience, knowing that Christ has commanded it, if we don't obey what he has commanded. That first point, crystal clear? All right, number two. Ordinance, the ordinance of baptism, or the Lord's Supper, has been given to us by Christ. He has commanded it. That's why we do it. But it's more than just the fact that what Christ has given us in the ordinances is a command to observe a ceremony. Right? This is, in, in part, one of the beautiful things about the ordinances. That it's not a, merely a command or an obligation, but it is a gift that has been given to us. So turn from Matthew, turn to Romans chapter 6. And start with me at Romans 6, verse 3. Listen to how Paul talks about baptism and the significance that he gives it. Listen as, as I read these verses and see and think through how is it that baptism is a sign and a seal of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Romans 6, 3 and following. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self, our old person, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. What do we mean when we say that 
that Christ has given baptism as a sign and as a seal. Sign is the easier concept than, than seal. We, we get a little stuck on that. We'll get to that in a minute. But, here, but here's what's going on. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is saying that when you were baptized, when we see someone being baptized, what we're seeing is the gospel being made visible or the gospel being reenacted, being dramatized as it were. We believe, we take on faith, the good news that has been preached to us is that man left to be judged for his sin has been graciously saved by our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died the death that we deserved, conquered sin and death, as was evident by his resurrection back to new life, and all that have placed their trust in him receive all of those things from Christ. And what baptism does is it says, okay, you've heard about that, you've read it, you've heard people talk about it, let me show you, let me give you a picture for your benefit, what that looks like. And so we, we watch, in this instance, and this morning, Michaela, we watch a reenactment of Michaela and her old life left to her own sin and devices being buried, being done away with, being destroyed. Because when Christ died, her sin nature died too. And Christ's death was not symbolic, it was real, it was genuine. He was plunged into the fullness of death. And so, in death, there is burial. We watch someone be placed under the waters as if they were being placed in, under the ground, in the tomb dead, gone. But just as God raised his son back up to new life, we watch that person come out of the water being washed, dripping to say the person that went down is not the same person who came back up. Not in a spiritual sense, not in the way that we understand Scripture to say that for all who are in Christ, they are a new creation. That is Michaela coming up out of the water, but that is not Michaela according to the flesh. That is Michaela according to the Spirit. If you have been privileged to receive the gift of baptism, when you were plunged under the waters, that was you symbolizing, signifying that your old life, what you had previously clung to, you were allowing to be buried by the power of Jesus Christ in his death, and when you were raised up out of the water, you were being raised to signify the fact that you had been raised to new life, that you are no longer to be identified by your fleshly nature, but by the spiritual nature that is given to you by God through Christ in his Holy Spirit. And every time we see that, the church has something to celebrate. There it is. You saw it. Evidence again that God is bringing dead people to life. There it is. 
evidence again that God is not done working, that God is still calling people to himself, that people, when they hear the voice of Christ in the pages of scriptures, that their hearts are being awakened and drawn to him, that they recognize the voice of their good shepherd, and they come to be gathered together with him, to follow him with joy and gladness. There's another one. We saw it We saw it reenacted. We couldn't see it on the inside. We can't see that resurrection of the heart, but we can see it being evidenced or given witness to by the physical act of baptism, and that gives us, as a church family, the opportunity to rejoice about an unseen miracle that God has performed. We should never get tired of seeing someone baptized. So it's a sign. It gives us an image. It gives us a picture of spiritual realities that we can, that we can lay hold on. Our eyes can see it. Listen, one of the difficulties with our faith is that right now our eyes do not see the vast majority of what we hold by faith. We want to see, don't we? Right? That, we, we sing that, Lord, haste the day, hurry it up, when our faith will be sight. In the meantime, God has been so good and kind to us to say, while you can't see everything yet, I will give you some things that you can see and watch, and that will hold you over until you get to see the big picture. That's what he's doing in baptism. That's what he's doing in the Lord's Supper. He's giving us something to fix our eyes on as in a way to fix our eyes on Jesus. It images the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. But not only is it a sign, it's a seal. Now, here's here's where we tend to get hung up. If If you've heard any kind of this talk or lingo... Don't think about baptism being a sign and a seal. Don't think of it being a seal in the sense that the seal is what keeps you in, right? Like we seal something in a Ziploc bag to keep it fresh. Not that kind of sealing, right? The sealing that we're talking about is like the seal of approval. So so you go to the store and you find, I, I don't know, what, what do people shop for at stores? Ba- baking supplies, I, something like that. Baking utensils, all right? And you see that on this box, this muffin tin or whatever it is, you've got a stamp, a seal of approval, a mark, an image of Martha Stewart, Rachel Ray, Emerald, right? I can't believe I'm actually bringing these names up. I don't watch any of these shows. <laughs> but I know you do. Yes. <laughs> All right, you see that. And what you see when you see that, that stamp, that mark, you have greater confidence in that product because, well, this can't be some sort of cheap knockoff because it's got this person's name attached to it. It's got the good housekeeping seal of approval. 
Ah, okay, I know that I'm not throwing my money away. I know that this is legit. I can buy it, I can get it, I can invest in it. This is giving me confidence. That's the kind of seal that we're talking about. What baptism and the Lord's Supper do, it is something like a seal of approval that is meant to give confidence and assurance in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Now, here again is where we say, don't think about that confidence and assurance as a guarantee, as if simply because I've been baptized or because I'm going to take of a wafer and a drink, that means that I am guaranteed saved. No, that's not the way it works. Baptism, Lord's Supper, the ordinances do not save you. However, because these things have been given to God's people as a gift, When we take them and when we participate in them, they are meant to remind us and give us confidence that this faith that we live by is a faith that is itself a gift from God. He has given this to us. He has promised salvation to us. And as a way to guarantee, as a way to give us greater confidence and assurance, He gives us these things to lay hold of and to see and to rehearse so that we know, yes, we really do belong to Him. What happens, use another illustration or analogy of of the way that a seal works. Young man is struck by the beauty of a young woman, and he begins to pursue her. She actually gives him the time of day. So they begin to develop a relationship. They get to know each other. This young man decides that he wants to, he wants to take this woman to be his wife. What does he do to assure her that he intends to take her as his wife, that he is committed to her, that he's all in. He gives her a ring. Why does he give her a ring? Two reasons. One, an engagement ring given to this young woman is a sign that she has been marked out for the man who gave her this ring, right? I'm, I want to marry her. And she has said that she wants to marry me. So anytime you see a ring on that specific finger, that, that stands as a sign that that person is now in a different relationship or in a different position than what they had been six months prior. That ring is a sign of a relationship that exists. It also, though, is a seal because it's intended to show, at least in part, to the woman who receives that sign, that ring, it's meant to demonstrate to her that he really is serious about marriage. Right, so they get in all these long conversations and he professes his undying love to her. Oh, the sun rises and sets on you. There's no one like you. Oh, I want to spend the rest of my life to you. And she's been hearing this for week after week after week after week, month after month after month. And she thinks to herself, I believe it when I see the ring. Talk is cheap. Now, here's the thing. 
he may actually be 100% sincere and genuine in those bold, romantic statements that he is making to her. The ring does not change what he has said from false to true, but it demonstrates, it gives her the confidence that what he has promised, what he has said, is in fact true. It gives her a greater degree of confidence. Do you see what we're driving at? That's what God does in the ordinances. It's not that his word is untrustworthy, but it's because of our lack of confidence. It's because of the weakness of our faith that he generously gives to us another means by which we can grow in our confidence that he belongs to us and we belong to him. We can look at baptism and we can say, not only is that a sign that I have been marked out as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I can look back on that and I can say, no, that faith is real. That union with Christ is real. As real as that water was covering me, and enveloping me, that is as real as my union, my being covered in the life of Jesus Christ. As real as what this wafer is that I'm going to touch to my tongue, the taste, the smell, the feel, everything, the, the drink, as real as what that is, realer still is the reality of spiritual life in Jesus Christ. He gives us these things as a seal to build our confidence in his saving work that he gives to us freely. What would you think of the woman who receives the ring from her fiancé, or fiancé-to-be? He gives her the ring gladly, generously, as a gift, as a way for them to share a greater degree of joy in the relationship that they have. What would you think of her if she looked at it and said, thanks? Just stuck it in her pocket. Something is not right. If God has given us the ordinances in a similar way, that is a far, far smaller indication or illustration of the gift of the ordinances. But if God, through Christ, has given us the ordinances as a way to strengthen and bolster our faith, if these are gifts to us so that we would be able to more clearly see the reality of our salvation, so that we would grow in our confidence, what in the world does it say? about God's people to receive those kinds of gifts and to say, eh, thanks, but I'll be all right without it. He does not owe us these gifts, but he gives them to us freely. And it is to our shame and our embarrassment and our ignorance that we do not take full advantage of the things that he has graciously given us. Now, let me say this. There is inevitably, in the Christian life, a way in which we continue to grow and mature, not just in our behavior, but in our understanding, okay? Many of us have not spent time, I'll put myself at the front of the list, many, at the front of the line, many of us have not spent much time thinking about the significance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We do not think of it as a gift, as a way that God intends to build up His church as we share in this together. 
But consider once again the goodness and patience of God to bring you to a place where if you had not ever considered that, you are able to consider it now. And now in your Christian life, you can take another deeper step in your relationship with the Lord in enjoying the gifts of the ordinances. Number three. The ordinances are given to us. Baptism is given to us. The Lord's Supper is given to us by a command of Christ. Number two, they are a sign and seal of the promises of our salvation. Number three, baptism itself is an act of faith and obedience. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. It's interesting that after Jesus ascends... And the Holy Spirit in Acts descends on the disciples. They go out and they begin to preach. Peter preaches his famous Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. He preaches the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that he is Savior and Lord. And his audience, the people who are listening, are convicted of the truth of what he is saying. And they call out to him and say, Brothers, what must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Later in Acts, when Paul is recounting his own conversion experience, where he's blinded on his way to Damascus, when the Lord pairs him with another disciple named Ananias, he says that Ananias instructs him to rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Now, having said that, look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. He's talking, he has just finished talking about how the Lord saved Noah and his family through the floodwaters of judgment and brought them safely to the other side. And Peter says, corresponding to that, 1 Peter 3, 21, or in the same way, by way of analogy, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Do you hear that? Baptism now saves you. Whoa, wait, wait. I thought baptism does not save you. Only Jesus does. Listen to what Peter is saying. Baptism now saves you. What saves you is not the water of baptism. It's not being dunked and being raised back up again. That doesn't save you. It's what the baptism is doing, what it represents in you. Your baptism, Peter says, is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Do you hear that? One of the ways... did that on purpose. I didn't want him to preach too long today. He, he came up and said there was only one bar left. I was like, yeah, I was trying to give you a subtle hint there, but I don't think he got it. So you need to... All right. How are we? Can we hear? Okay. Elders, make a note. We'll need to meet with uh, Andy Johnston later on this week. 
for a raise. Oh, my word. <laughs> Church discipline. Peter is saying, 1 Peter 3. See, I didn't lose my place. 1 Peter 3. Peter is saying what happens in baptism is that in the act of baptism, your faith is calling out to God saying, I am in need of a clean conscience. I need to be cleansed and purged of my sin. Not just the acts itself, but the memory, the guilt that I have of those things. I need to know. So that for every Christian who is baptized, the baptism itself is an act of faith. Otherwise, you would not go to be baptized. You believe that Christ is able to save you from your sins. You believe that He has commanded you to be baptized. And because you believe that, you obey the truth of what you've heard by being baptized. It is a gift that He gives to us to build us up in our faith. But baptism is also a way in which we exercise our faith and we demonstrate it by responding to the good word that we've heard. Now then, having said all of that, I hope that is persuasive enough that if for some reason you're a Christian who has not been baptized, that you will want to be baptized as a way to demonstrate your faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. If you are not a Christian, these things are new to you and you want to understand more, I hope that this creates some sort of curiosity or unsettledness in you that would draw you in even further to ask more questions and to find out more. So before I do anything else, let me just say this. At the end of this service, because we're talking about baptism as an initiation into faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to remain down front. When our service is over, if you have questions about baptism, you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, you have any questions about what it means to enter into faith in Christ, how baptism connects to that, I'm going to remain up front. You'll be able to find me easily and there will not be a line backing up behind you that you have to worry about holding up. We can talk as long as you want. We'll have one of our other elders standing at the door who can handle all that other stuff. All right. Now, let me speak specifically before we change gears a little bit to address just briefly. We could spend a whole other sermon talking about these things, but let me, by way of practical theology, so to speak, let me talk about or mention three things that are brought to bear as we think through the essential nature of baptism for a church body. All right? Number one, this is in your notes. Should we link baptism or connect baptism to church membership and the Lord's Supper? The answer is yes. Listen to these verses. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, that by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. That body that he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 is the church. So when we are baptized into Christ, Romans 6, Paul also says, 1 Corinthians 12, we are baptized into Christ's body, which is the church. 
He says elsewhere in Galatians 3, 27 and 28, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? To be united to Christ, remember we said this weeks ago, to be united to Christ is also to be united to Christ's people. If you are baptized into Christ, Paul teaches by the authority of the Holy Spirit that you are also baptized into the covenant community. We ought to think, unless we are under extraordinary circumstances, the ordinary way that we ought to think about baptism, when we see someone being baptized, we ought not only to think that person is being baptized into Christ, we ought to think they are being baptized as one of us. That's my brother in a unique way in this particular local church body. That's my sister in a unique way in this local church body because all that are baptized into Christ are baptized into the church. Jesus said, go out and make disciples. He did not say, go out and make converts. He did not say, win them with the gospel, get them baptized, and then send them on their way with a song in their heart. No. If we're making them disciples, and if discipleship happens within the body of Christ's people, that disciple-making that includes the act of baptism ought to include their connection, their fellowship with the local church body. Anyone that goes to the waters of baptism here, we ought to think, first and foremost, because they've been baptized here, they're here. They're one of us. In the Lord's Supper, one of the differences in a simplistic sort of way, I, mean, I need to do this very briefly, we can talk more about it next week. Baptism in the Lord's Supper. Baptism signifies someone's new birth, their entrance into Christ and the covenant community. The Lord's Supper images or is a sign of their active participation in the life and community of Christ, right? In other words, in order to be able to sit at the family table for a family meal, you have to be born first. From the earliest days in the Christian church, we've got, we've got writings, we've got men who wrote on this, who said very clearly, let not anyone come and partake of the Lord's table unless they have been baptized first. Take the sign of baptism. Profess your faith in obedience to Christ as your Lord and Savior through baptism. Show that you have taken on the new birth as a gift, and then because you have been born into the covenant community, then sit at the table and eat with the covenant community. Don't do it in reverse. Jesus said, baptize them. That's the first step. Number two. Should we baptize infants and children? 
Baptize infants? No. Baptize children? Maybe. Like that political answer? Right? Here's why. Simply put, baptism is given as a sign and a seal for those who have been made disciples of Jesus Christ, who have responded in faith and repentance to the gospel message. Because an infant cannot respond in faith and repentance to the gospel message, we do not believe that it is right to give them the sign of discipleship which comes through faith. By extension, then, the big question becomes, well, if it is by faith that we take baptism, what do I do when little Johnny comes to me when he's four years old and he says, I've asked Jesus into my heart? Come back to the evening service tonight. Number three, should we rebaptize people? No. All right? Let me, not just here within this church body, but other, other Christians, right? I've, I've had these conversations where the, the statement will be made, they, someone will come and they will acknowledge that I have, I have strayed from the Lord. I've been wandering. I have not been obedient and faithful to him. I'm returning. I'm coming back. I'm renewing my commitment to him, and I feel like I need to be baptized as a way to, to express my renewal, my recommitment, my rededication to Christ. You don't need to do that. Okay? Here's why. Because God is so rich in his kindness The gospel is so full, the offer of salvation is so extensive that when Christ bought you, he bought your backsliding as well. When he gave you new birth and brought you into his family, he brought you into his family knowing full well that you were going to have a period of spiritual rebellion, and he took you anyway. You no more need to be baptized again as a sign of your new birth than you need to be physically born again to show your mom and dad that you really love them. If you're here and you are concerned that your baptism wasn't serious enough, it wasn't genuine enough, it wasn't legitimate enough, I got news for you. If that's the way that you judge and discern the authenticity of your faith, you are going to live a miserable Christian life because it's never going to be good enough. But if you turn your eyes off of yourself and put them on Jesus, you'll say, however weak my profession of faith may have been, however ignorant or slow I may have been to pick up on these things, nevertheless, in the riches of his kindness, he still took me and gave me that sign as a child anyway, and I am his. Your baptism in faith and repentance counts. Because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that fills up and covers every act of sin and disobedience and all the immaturity that you will ever have from the time you come to know Christ to the time that he calls you home. And you can rest.
We're going to turn now to the Lord's Supper. Let me say just briefly, in the same way, as we've already alluded to, in the same way that baptism is a sign of our entrance into the covenant community, that we have been born again, that we have been identified with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of that. It is given to us so that when we are baptized in faith and repentance, we can gain confidence that we are being accepted, that this faith is genuine, that we are responding as we should. In the same way, God gives us this ordinance of the Lord's Supper as a gift. He gives it to us as a sign, among other things, to show and for us to give evidence of the fact that we are continually feeding on Christ in order to stay alive, that He is the only reason that we continue to be spiritually vibrant and healthy because we come back and we feed on Him over and over and over again. And it is a way, it is a seal to you to bolster your confidence so that you can say, the reason that I'm here doing this again is because God has kept me in the faith and has brought me back to share in this meal one more time with my brothers and sisters. He has not abandoned me. He has not left me to wallow in my own sin and disobedience. He has not cast me aside. And this is a sign and a confirmation that he is still with me and will be with me to the end. You can rest as you participate in the Lord's Supper. Men, would you come forward, please, to help distribute the elements? As the men distribute the elements, if you would just simply hold them, we will partake the elements together. I would encourage you, if you have not yet been baptized into Christ, just simply let the elements pass by you not as a way to embarrass you or shame you, but as a way to demonstrate your seriousness, your intent to follow Christ in obedience. Christians, as you take these elements and hold on to them, just sit quietly and reflect on what it is that the Lord has done for us through Christ.
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And he says later in chapter 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You'll take the bread and partake, knowing that your participation in the bread is a sharing in the body of Jesus Christ. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as you drink, remember and rejoice in the fact that the Lord has given you another day to proclaim that you are waiting for his return. Let's drink. Father, as we go out from here, we ask that the things that we have seen and heard today would strengthen us in our faith and in our devotion to you. Cause your word, your scriptures to be buried into our hearts and minds so that it would take root and bear much fruit according to your providential care. May we give you all the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond to this uh truth that we've heard today from God's Word and the truth that we've seen through baptism and communion. Let's, let's celebrate.
we go out of these four walls, Lord, draw people to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. You're dismissed.